would you open up your Bible this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians? We're going to be in chapter 5 this morning, looking at verses 12 and 13. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and verse 13. Hear the word of our God. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe by your word and your promise that you are in our midst. You are here with us by your spirit, walking among us, and that humbles us, and it causes us to fear. You are the great God, great King, and we ask that as you minister your word to us with grace and mercy, that you would make our hearts receptive to your word, that we might hear it and believe it, and not only hear it and believe it, but love it. We would love your words. We need our souls nourished this morning, Lord Jesus, and we ask that you would nourish us and feed us, that you would shepherd us, And so we cast ourselves before you now and we ask, oh, would you work among us? Would you work among us? Amen. So as we turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 and through 13, uh, it becomes evident that we are on the last leg of our journey through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And you think about the journey that we've traveled through. It has been a good journey. We started with chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 1 through 3, Paul came to the Thessalonians through this letter, establishing them and affirming them, telling them again and again, I see God at work in your midst. I can see him doing this and this and this. I see it in your faith and your hope and your love. I see it in your sound conversion. I see it in all the work that you are performing in your area. And as we took in chapters 1 through 3, we were confirmed and affirmed, and we could see through these chapters that indeed God is at work in our midst. He is working for us and with us, and we were encouraged. And then we moved into chapters 4 and 5, and Paul understood that these believers needed specific instructions, and so he began to teach them. He taught them about holiness and and sexuality. He taught them about love and, and how they were to work. He taught them about the day of Jesus and how to prepare for it. And as we think about all the instruction in chapters 4 and 5, we need that instruction as well. Just as much as the Thessalonians, we need that biblical clarity about the will of God. And now here at the end, Paul rounds out his letter after chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 and 5. Paul comes to his conclusion and we meet a barrage of commands. Just listen to them. He comes to us saying, respect those who labor among you, esteem them very highly in love, be at peace, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. 
Do not repay evil, do good. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. And as we take in Paul's conclusion, all of these commands coming at us, we can compare it to a shotgun blast. As you know, a shotgun blast doesn't have a single point. There's a spray of of BBs coming out the barrel of the shotgun. And just like a shotgun blast, these verses and these commands don't have a single point. There is a variation to what Paul is saying. Some of what Paul is saying applies to church leadership and how leadership should be received in the body of Christ. Other commands have to do with interpersonal relationships, how we get along with each other in the body of Christ, how we relate to each other. And some commands have to do with our hearts. As suffering comes our way, as hardships come our way, how do we respond? What is going on in our hearts? Now, while a shotgun blast doesn't have a single point, there is always a target. That blast is aimed towards something. The BBs are flying towards something. And the same is true with Paul's commands. He has all of these commands going in all these different directions, but they are all headed towards a target, and that target is the local church. What Paul is doing in these commands is he is giving us a vision for the local church, what the church ought to look like, what the church ought to be, what we ought to be doing and striving after. And so what we're going to do in the, this week and in the, the coming weeks is we're going to focus in on each one of these BBs, and follow its trajectory as it hits us so that we might learn what we ought to be as God's people. And so first up are the verses 12 and 13. And we meet these two commands. Paul says, respect those who labor among you. Esteem them highly in love. So let's start with this. Every institution, no matter how big that institution is or how small that institution is, has something in common. And what it has in common is that there are leaders and followers. Someone is called to take initiative. Somebody has to start the conversation. Somebody has to give direction, cast the vision, take responsibility for what is going on, to start off in a new direction or simply maintain the direction that has been started out in. And consequently, as we think about it, someone is called to respond to leadership by lending a hand, by giving support, by getting behind and and following along. This is true for every sphere of life. It's true in marriage and family. God calls a father and a husband to lead, to take charge. And what does a wife and and children do? They they follow along. They follow that man. It's true in sports. A, A coach calls the plays. And what does the team do? The team executes the plays. This is true in the workplace. You have a boss or an employer, and they're telling you what to do. Here are the tasks for the day. And the employee goes out. And does them. And Paul makes clear in our two verses that this is true for the church as well. There are both leaders in the church and followers. The church, according to Paul, is not an amorphous blob of just people stuck together. There is structure. There are leaders and there are followers. And so Paul points this out to us, which is helpful, but he does something more. He gives us a vision for both leading and following. Just take notice of the words that Paul uses for how leadership should be received in the local church. He says that leaders should be respected, and not only respected, but that they should be esteemed highly in love. Just ponder those words for a moment. 
respect your leaders, love your leaders. What is Paul doing? Well, with these words, he's engaging our hearts. He's telling us that leadership is something that should be loved. It is something to be grumbled about or treated as a necessary evil or something to be put up with because we just need it to have this organization running. Rather, Paul tells us when the local church is functioning properly, leadership is something to be treasured. Something to be treasured. And here we need to ask a question. We go to Paul and we ask, well, why, Paul? Why? And the answer to that question is the source. Where does leadership come from in the local church? Why does Paul require us to engage our hearts toward church leaders, to to love them? Well, the answer is this. Jesus has given leaders to the church. We need to hear this and believe this. Church leadership, and so I'm talking about the, the office of overseer, elder, pastor, which we believe is one office. The office of overseer is the office of elder, which is the office of pastor. Three names for one position. And we believe that this office is not some sort of invention made up by man because they thought it was a, a great idea. We believe it not because it is some sort of best business practice, like we're smuggling in some, some pragmatism into our church. No, for Paul, leadership must be treasured and loved because it is a gift from the risen and reigning Jesus. In fact, Paul writes about this. He wants the church to know this. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, Paul says this. He writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. What Paul says here might be lost on us, but we can think about it like this. Paul tells us that Jesus descended and ascended. And what he is telling us is this. Jesus is the conquering king. He went into battle with the hordes of evil. He descended and he rose and he won. And he won. Or just think about 1 and 2 Samuel. We worked through so many different battle scenes there. We we saw David. He went to war with evil peoples. And what did he do? He, He vanquished them. And after he vanquished them, he received a bounty. And what did he do after that? Well, he would share the bounty with his men and with all of Israel. And so what Paul is saying is Jesus is this great warrior. He has gone into battle. He has won a great bounty. And what he does is he gives gifts to all of his people. And what are the gifts that Jesus gives? Well, Paul tells us he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. And this is so helpful for us. Think about it like this. How does Jesus, our risen and reigning king, care for his church? Or to apply that personally, how does Jesus, to this day, care for your soul? What we see here is one significant way he cares for his church, the way he cares for you personally, is he gives the gift of leadership to the church. He gives shepherds and pastors and teachers and elders. And as we think about it, leadership is a tangible example of Christ's continued love for his people. The great shepherd does not leave his people without under-shepherds that they would get lost and wander away, but he gives shepherds. 
And what does Jesus do? He raises them up again and again and again. Just look at church history. 2,000 years of it, we see the faithful love of Jesus towards his church as he gives pastor, as he gives elder, again and again and again. And so we see here that Paul has a vision for leading and following. That much is clear. Now our need is to look at Paul's vision in detail. We want to understand the, the fullness of it so that we might receive Jesus' gifts with, with gratitude. So look at our two verses. Our two verses are rather simple. We find three descriptions of leaders. So Paul's describing what leaders do. And then in response, he gives two commands to the church, to those who follow. And so what I want to do is just work through these two verses, pointing out first the three descriptions of leaders And then in response, looking at the two commands that Paul gives. So the first description that Paul gives is this. Leaders work. Leaders work. Paul writes, verse 12. Respect those who labor among you. So this is interesting. Paul wants us to identify our leaders by what they do. And so according to Paul, a leader, an elder, a pastor, should be known for his sweat and his toil. And so we ask, well, what does it look like for a leader to sweat and toil in ministry? Well, Paul helps us out. If you turn to Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29, Paul says, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, for this I sweat, for this I work, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. That's helpful because the toil that Paul has in mind isn't the toil that you get when you lift weights in the gym or, or you labor out in the sun. Rather, it's what happens when a man gives his ministry and life to the church. And what Paul has in mind is the work of helping people grow up and become full grown disciples. Whereas we connect this to the letter of 1 Thessalonians, it's the work of getting people ready to meet Jesus that they would stand in judgment, blameless in holiness. And so we ask, well, how do leaders do that? Well, we find more help in 1 Timothy 5.17. Paul says this, Let the elder who rules well be considered of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. A leader who labors for the good of God's people, getting everyone ready to meet Jesus, labors with the tools of ministry. And what are the tools of ministry? Well, it is the word of God, and the word of God must be proclaimed in public preaching and teaching and in private counseling and teaching and conversation. And so a leader, one who is going to toil and work for the good of God's people, is going to take up the word of God and bring it to bear upon the people of God. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. So what do leaders do? Leaders work, and they work in the word of God for the good of the people of God. That's Paul's first description. He moves on, and he gives us a second description, and that description is this. Leaders exercise a fatherly rule. So Paul says, verse 12, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. So Paul tells us that leaders are over others. Very simply, some people in the body of Christ occupy positions of authority. 
Now, Paul's language in verse 12 might sound strange to our ears, perhaps a bit condescending, as if leaders are exalted and followers are below them at their feet. But that would be a misreading of Paul. It's not what Paul wants us to hear. We get some help by turning to another passage while Paul uses the same exact word. So in 1 Timothy 3, we find an assortment of criteria and qualifications for elders. And here Paul says this, 1 Timothy 3, 4. He must, so the elder must manage, or we could retranslate that. He must be over his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So according to Paul, a leader has authority, but that authority is not carried out like a high executive who sits in his corner office looking down on people. No, this authority, according to Paul, is a fatherly authority. And just think about what a good father does for his family. A good father is given authority by God, and a good father uses that authority. He leads his family. He sets direction for his family. He establishes expectations and and discipline for his family. This is how we're going to live. Follow me in this path, and I'm going to enforce this path in my family. But he does not do this with a cruel spirit. Just think about a good father. He sets this direction, and what does he do? With love and care, he brings his family along. In fact, he he cares for all of the needs of his family, for his wife and for his children. And Paul has the same vision in mind for those who lead God's people. These leaders would be known for their fatherly rule among God's people, that they would care as they set out in direction, loving God's people. In fact, to take it a step further, Paul wants these leaders to pursue their leadership with ambition. A good father is not shy about being a father. He doesn't sit idly by while his household spins out of control. Rather, he he steps into his household and he leads with ambition for the good of those in his household. And Paul wants this for church leaders, that they would step into the church with ambition and zeal and lead. In fact, Paul says this clearly in Romans 12, 6 through 8. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given us, let us use them. Jesus gives gifts, and what are we to do with them? We're to to make use of them. And Paul goes on. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our service, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in his generosity, and catch this, the one who leads with zeal. If you're going to lead, you must do it with zeal, Paul is saying. Give it. And so that's what leaders must do. They must exercise a fatherly rule among God's people, and they must do it with ambition and zeal for the good of God's people. And we get one last description. And the description is this. Leaders do the difficult work. They do the difficult work. So verse 12 again. Paul says, Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. We've got those two descriptions. And then he says, And admonish you. Admonish is not a word we use very often. It's not in our vocabulary, but it has a very simple meaning. When you see someone thinking the wrong thing or living the wrong way, admonishment is a word of correction. You are going to that person, attempting to change them with your words. And as we think about it, this has to be the most difficult description that Paul gives to us. To labor and sweat in the word of God, to to take 
lead and, and extend a fatherly rule, those things are good and often joyful. But to go to someone and tell them that they have it wrong or what they're doing is wrong is a difficult work. I don't know any leader who loves the work of admonishment. Just think about it. Everything in your flesh cries out against the work of admonishment. I don't want to be that awkward guy your flesh says. I don't want to be known as a judgmental bigot. I don't want them to hate me. All of those temptations draw near and rear their ugly head for every church leader as the work of admonishment draws near. But what's interesting to notice how Paul describes church leaders. They are known through their work of admonishment. It is something they give themselves to and they do not pull back from. They admonish the body of Christ. Now, for clarity's sake, this does not mean that church leaders are sin detectives and that they're sleuthing and sniffing around trying to find some small infraction in the body of Christ. Paul's not after that. That'd be a complete misunderstanding of what Paul wants for leaders. The law of love and grace governs the church. But it does mean that these leaders bear the responsibility to enter into and enter into willingly the awkward and difficult when the awkward and difficult present themselves. Who's leading the charge? It's these men. They do the work of admonition. They are after it. They are for it. So that's the third description that Paul gives us. Leaders do difficult work. They admonish. So we've got the three descriptions under our belt. Leaders work and toil in the word of God. Leaders exercise a fatherly rule. And also leaders do difficult work. They admonish. And so we ask... What are followers supposed to do with these leaders? When we see these men doing their work, how are we to respond to them? Well, Paul gives us two commands. The first command is in verse 12. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Paul commands respect. Respect these men, Paul says. And that means that, that followers are duty-bound to recognize, ah, that's our leader. Those are our leaders. To, to support them and then even to submit to them as they do their work of leadership. And so we see this. This respect piece is clear. Then Paul ups the ante with a second command. In verse 13, he says this, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. We need to slow down here and think. What does that mean, to esteem them very highly in love because of their work? Well, to begin with, esteem is a thinking thing. It's a cognitive function in your brain. Paul is calling us to think about our leaders in a certain way. And he wants us to think about our church leaders in the highest way possible. He pulls out a superlative. He calls us to go beyond all measure. He calls us to, to reach as high as we can. And finally, this way of thinking is to be done in love, meaning all of this thinking. So we're thinking highly of our leaders, reaching beyond all measure. And as we think this way, it gives birth to affections in our hearts. We are changed. We actually love these people. And then this love gives birth in our actions and in our deeds and in our words. Now, what Paul does here is stunning. The respect piece we get. It is important that leaders be recognized and their authority legitimized. The church needs that, otherwise there's chaos and trouble. Any institution needs that. 
But Paul's not content with respect. He reaches. He's reaching towards love. He desires that the church would be bound together with cords of love. And as we have seen through the letter of 1 Thessalonians, this requires leaders to love those who they are called to care for. And Paul has shown us how he has done this. He was a father to the Thessalonians in the gospel. He was a mother to the Thessalonians in the gospel, caring for them. And Paul teaches here that that love is to be reciprocated. Their followers are to love their leaders. So Paul's vision is before us. It's not a complicated vision. Leaders must lead. And they do this by working hard in the word of God. They toil and sweat in it. And then they exercise a fatherly rule over God's people so that they would be benefited. And then, of course, they have to give themselves to the difficult work of admonition. And Paul turns to the people of God and he presses upon them two commands. You must respect your leaders for it. And then you must love them as well. And Paul teaches us this is how we receive the gifts of Jesus. So the vision is there before us. It's not hard to understand. Three descriptions, two commands. And it's here I want to ask a question. What difference should this make for us as God's people? What difference should these two verses make for us, this vision of leading and following? I've got two applications. The first difference it should make is this should make a difference for leaders. If a church leader has his head screwed on straight and his heart beating in time with the scriptures, he will find that the work of leadership is burdensome work. And it's really easy to become discouraged and weary in the work. Over time, he will feel a burden in his heart. The needs, the concerns, the troubles, the sins of people will press down on the center of his emotional life like a heavy weight. Not only will he feel it in his heart, but you'll feel it in his brain as he wrestles with God's word, trying to figure out what God is saying to these people in this specific time. You'll feel it in his spirit. The leader is called to strive with God for the blessings of God. You think of Jacob wrestling with the Lord, not letting go until he was blessed. And, and that is a picture of what church leaders ought to be like, wrestling with the Lord, not letting go until the people are blessed. And when a church leader has his head screwed on straight and his heart beating in time, he'll feel it in his bones. As the pressure exerts on his soul and his spirit and his brain, it'll be felt in his body. And Paul himself has told us what this looks like. If you just remember, Paul has told us all about his labor and toil for the people of God. Do you remember? He told us he got up before the sun rose and he worked on throughout the entirety of the day. And after the sun set, he was still working. And then in the midst of all of his work, he was preaching the gospel and discipling new believers in Jesus. But Paul told us about his heart and how he was engaged in the work. He told us how he loved the Thessalonians. He said, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He said, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. He told us about all the sacrifices he made for the sake of the Thessalonians. When he was traveling and doing missionary work, planting, he split up his missionary team, sending Timothy back so that the Thessalonians might be established and strengthened in the midst of their trials. He told us about the anxiety he was experiencing in his soul. He feared that Satan himself was among them, tempting them to turn away from the faith as trials and temptations were overcoming them. And Paul was a pastor, and he knew well the burdensome nature of Christian ministry. And out of that knowledge, Paul turns to the church, and he, he instructs them. 
He tells the church, respect and love those who lead you. And Paul's desires that leaders, when they carry out their work, as they toil in the word, as they, as they rule a fatherly rule, as they admonish, that they wouldn't be met with scowls or disapproval, that they wouldn't be met with opposition or cold indifference, but that as leaders do their work, they would be met with love in the church and that they would be refreshed with God's people. And you think about Paul. Paul knew about the refreshment God's people brings. We have seen it in this letter. As Paul heard the news from Timothy about the good news of their faith and love, Paul's spirit was buoyed up. He thought he was going to die. But he heard the good news of God's people, and he was revived, even resurrected. And the same is true for all church leaders. As church leaders see the progress of, of joy and faith and hope and love, it, it buoys up their spirits to continue on. So this vision should make a difference for leaders. It also should make a difference for followers. So God has given to us all eyes and ears and brains. That means we, we see things, we hear things, we think things. And from what we see and hear and think, we have distinct thoughts about how things should be done and why they should be done. And here's the thing about having distinct thoughts about how things should be done and why things should be done. You think your thoughts are the best thoughts. They're warranted. When you have thoughts, you're thinking them because you think they're the best thoughts. Otherwise, you wouldn't be thinking those thoughts. That would be insanity. And this is how we're wired, and, and this makes following a difficult work. So leading is a difficult work, and, and following is a difficult work as well. For example, when leadership sets out in a direction that you aren't so keen on, what's really easy to do? This happens at home. It can happen in the church. It can happen anywhere. It's easy to bristle. And then as time goes on, it's easy to second-guess what has been done. Or it gets easy to stubbornly refuse leadership. Say, I'm not going that way. I refuse it. Or another example, following gets really difficult when the work of admonishment is done. And so a leader sees something in your life and brings a word of correction. That's when it gets really hard to follow. What happens? Well, you're tempted to stop showing up. You're tempted to become distant. You're, you're tempted to stop answering the phone or stop answering emails. Even worse, you're tempted to become bitter and angry that someone would think they have the right to adjust you with their words. What does Paul do? Well, he comes to us with words of counsel, wise words of counsel. What we owe our leaders, Paul is telling us, is respect and love. And the truth is, we need Paul's counsel. We need his words to soften us up. We live in a society of individualism. We live in a society that, that is pride. Our own hearts are filled with pride, and we want things our own way on our own time. And Paul comes to us, and he says, Dear Christian, dear Christian, these words are for you. Respect and love. And Paul does this not because he's an authoritarian, because he wants God's people to receive Christ's gifts and so be led and built up and see the church flourish and grow. And so this vision should make a difference for all of us as we receive Christ's gifts. We should heed Paul's words and become eager to follow them. And so I want to close with this. I want to close with a call. And the call has two aims. It's aimed at leaders and at the congregation. And so leaders, fellow brother elders, hear this call. It's from God. Lead with zeal. Brother elders, work in the word of God. Toil. 
Don't be slack. It really matters. Exercise a fatherly rule. Step into leadership. Lead with zeal and ambition for the good of God's people. Don't step back. And do the hard work. Do the work of admonition because Jesus' people need it and Jesus has called you to it. And so leaders, I call you, lead, lead. And for you, all of God's people, Paul gives you commands, respect, and love. And hear this, they are good for you because they are God's words. And God loves you and he gives these words for your good. And so press into them. Love these words and do these words and do these words while praying that the Lord would would bless you. For you may find that your heart becomes enlarged with love for Jesus as you receive Jesus' gifts again and again and again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for your word. We need your word constantly and always changing us. Leaders need your word. We need to be encouraged and charged to lead. And all of us, we need the call to hear and obey. So Lord Jesus, would you take your word and would you press it on our hearts and change us? We need your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. In your name, Jesus. Amen.